Good evening and welcome. I'm Sanjeev Arora, uh, the chairman of the Public Lectures Committee at Princeton, and this is our second lecture in the series this year. And uh, uh, we have quite a few others coming up. The next speaker is uh, former Secretary of the Treasury, Robert Rubin. Uh, and uh, about, uh, I want to say a few words about tonight's lecture. Well, we will have uh, somebody who will introduce the speaker, uh, but I wanted to say something about the Stafford Little Fund, which funds tonight's lecture. And uh, the story of these funds is actually very interesting. So the Stafford Little Fund was initially known as the Stafford Little Lecturership on Public Affairs, and it was founded in 1899 with a gift of $10,000 by Henry Stafford Little of the class of 1844, who suggested that Grover Cleveland, ex-president of the United States, be invited to deliver before the students of the university such lectures as he might be disposed to give from year to year. Mr. Cleveland was a Stafford Little lecturer until his death in 1908. Between 1954-1955 and 1970-1971, the Committee on Public Lectures expressed an intent to use this fund to address topics in the, begin quote, general area of the social sciences, end quote. Lecturers have included Theodore Roosevelt, who spoke about the national strength and international duty in 1917 and 1918, Albert Einstein on the meaning of relativity in 1920-1921, Henry Stimson on democracy and nationalism in Europe in 1933, Arnold Schoenberg on 12th tone music composition, Thurgood Marshall on the constitutional rights of the Negro in 1963-64, and Gunnar Myrtle on the racial crisis in the United States in historical perspective in 1969. A few words about Mr. Stafford Little. He was a lawyer by profession, and he was active in New Jersey politics and was the first president of the New York and Long Branch Railroad Company. According to Dean Andrew West, Princeton, open quote, took the place of the wife, home, and children he never had, close quote. He died, greatly mourned, in 1904. So tonight's Stafford Little Lecturer is Jim Fallows, and he'll be introduced by Professor Sheldon Garan of the History Department. Uh, thank you, Sanjeev. Uh, it's really my pleasure to introduce uh, James Fallows. Uh, tonight I've known him for about a decade or so. Uh, he's a person that, because of his wide-ranging interests, he's well-known to many people in many sorts of fields here at Princeton. Uh, he currently uh, works as the national correspondent for the Atlantic Monthly, a magazine that he has worked for uh, for some 25 years. Uh, he has done other uh, things, also very other, uh, other interesting things, including uh, serving as uh, President Jimmy Carter's uh, chief speechwriter uh, in the late 1970s. Uh, and uh, for a brief time in the late 1990s, uh, he served as uh, the chief editor of U.S. News and World Report. Uh, many of you will know him from National Public Radio, where he appears often. Also, you probably read his articles not only in The Atlantic, uh, but in uh, many other magazines, including Slate, uh, New York Times Magazine, and the New York Review of Books. If I had to pick two words that describe James Fallows as a uh, journalist, they would be independent and imaginative. Uh, throughout his career, 
He has questioned the conventional wisdom that all too often circulates around Washington and in the media and in various policy think tanks. Uh, He takes intellectual risks. He asks original questions, and he probes, and he probes, and he probes. Indeed, uh, Fallows made a highly unorthodox uh, and very wonderful choice in the late 1980s when he chose uh, to move uh, himself and his family uh, to first Japan for two years and then Malaysia for two years uh, for the purpose of covering the rise of Asia's dynamic economies. These experiences resulted in two of his books, More Like Us in 1989 and Looking at the Sun in 1994, as well as his famous and provocative article containing Japan, which appeared in the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, His other books include uh, National Defense in 1981 and also a critique of the news media Breaking the News that appeared in 1996. Also, uh, this you may not know, he is an instrument-rated private pilot, and in 2001 he published a book, Free Flight, uh, Inventing the Future of Travel. Now, in recent years, Mr. Fallows has written a series of articles on U.S. policy toward Iraq, the Iraq War, and, in general, the war on terrorism, the most famous of which is his article, The 51st State, which appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, November 2002, uh, for which he received the National Magazine Award. Now, in this essay, he discussed the possible, the probable consequences of occupying Iraq, And he spoke, in fact, on this very topic uh, at Princeton uh, three years ago in November 2002. Now, bear in mind, when he wrote and researched this article over the summer of 2002, that this was months before the actual war began with Iraq. And he wrote about the occupation and what it would mean at a time when few others in this country would dare use the word occupation when thinking about the aftermath of the U.S. victory. And I would encourage you to read or reread uh, the 51st state in the light of the events of the past three years. Uh, He predicted many of the consequences, the unintended consequences of the war with Iraq uh, with an impressiveness and rather a chilling detail. And he is going to talk more about this topic tonight. But let me just leave you with the opening line from the 51st state in 2002. Quote, going to war with Iraq would mean shouldering all of the responsibilities of an occupying power the moment victory was achieved. These would include running the economy, keeping domestic peace, and protecting Iraq's borders, and doing it for years or perhaps decades. Are we ready for this long-term relationship, unquote? And again, to remind you, this appeared in the early fall of 2002. Tonight, some three years later, Mr. Fallows returns to us, continues this story, and asks, after Iraq, what's ahead for America? Please join me in welcoming James Fallows back to Princeton. Thank you very much, Professor Guerin, for that gracious introduction. I'm going to put this over here. 
Thank you. It's obvious why I would feel honored to be here this evening in the tradition of the Stafford Little Lectures. I've never before had something that connected me with Grover Cleveland, but now I do. So, so <laughs> my life becomes a little more complete each day. But I truly am honored, given the people who have been at this podium over the years, to be part of that. So I thank very much the lecture committee. Also, in ways that might not be so obvious, it's a tremendous pleasure for me to be here this evening. I, I have no direct, you know, personal or familial connection to Princeton, but I have numerous friendship connections here, and I'm glad to renew them. Also, I have a family connection connected, uh, or an indirect family connection that is related to something Professor Guerin said. My father did not go to Princeton. He uh, barely went to college at all, the first one of his family even to consider going to college, and he grew up in a very modest community not so far from here during the Great Depression years. And about a year ago, he was out visiting in the, the, from the West Coast, where, he had, where I had grown up, outside Los Angeles. And I was able to do something that he had always wanted to do, which was to take him and my little propeller airplane for an aerial tour of Princeton and the wonderful areas around here. And he thought this, uh, it looked even prettier than he had thought. And so uh, Princeton and its environs are associated with a very warm moment in my family's life. So I thank you for whatever modest noise disturbance we might have caused you about a year ago. We tried to cut back on the, uh, on the propeller at that point. Let me explain the, the plans I have had in mind while preparing over the last couple of months to come here today. And I do have in mind the time I was here almost three years ago, talking about the preparations for a war in Iraq. All around you, those who are students and members of the faculty and the community, are great professors and theorists and academic experts on numerous areas of study. I realize more and more as time goes on that essentially what I am is a, a reporter. And my comparative advantage is being able just to, having a right and a, a occupational obligation to talk to people in different lines of work, work and ask their opinions on what's happening. And over the last three years, starting just a few months before I was here in 2002 and until as recently as this morning, I've mainly been talking to people in the military, associated with the military, in the Washington policy establishment about this phase of American history that we're all living through, the, uh, the war on terror, as it's often called, the war in Iraq, as it has to be called. And over the last three years while, while doing this, I've been able to do a number of articles in the Atlantic Monthly. And what I wanted to do for the next while is both tell you the results of this reportorial experience, the thing, not any theories I've necessarily developed, but the weight of the evidence, the information I've been exposed to, perhaps not all of you have, and what that implies, what it bodes for the time ahead. I realized that, that I hadn't, before having the, uh, the uh, exercise and the excuse of coming here, I hadn't thought coherently about the larger themes of five main articles I've done in the Atlantic in the last three years about Iraq. The first one Professor Guerin mentioned to you, which was the one called the 51st State. The Atlantic has both a blessing and the curse, although mainly the curse, of a three to four month lead time. You know, that, that when you write an article, it's going to be, uh, when you plan to do, a write, write, do an article, it's usually six months after your first intention that it reaches the, the readers. So when we knew war was ahead, we had to sort of present things differently from other publications. And Cullen Murphy, the Atlantic's editor, was the one who suggested I do this, this pre-war uh, prediction that summer. I did another long article uh, shortly after that, when, it is seen, when, it, when the occupation of Iraq had begun and some of the providence had, uh, problems had become evident. This was called Blind into Baghdad. And its main point was the U.S. government was replete 
with studies, with warnings, with predictions about how it could contain things in Iraq, and for one reason or another, these had not been made use of. I did one a few years after that, which was called the lost year. And its argument was looking closely at the year 2002 as the time when America's options for dealing with the general threat of ter terrorism narrowed from quite a wide range the U.S. had at the beginning of 2002 to the end of 2002 when war with Iraq was essentially the only thing we had left. What the, what the causes of that narrowing were, what the implications were. I did one after that, which was called Success Without Victory, which was about how you could deal with, you could mitigate the effects of terrorism uh, without ever being finally victorious over it. And finally, one which I uh, have the galley proofs with me, and I was looking at them on the train up here, about which will be out in about three or four weeks, about why exactly it is that a plausible Iraqi security force doesn't exist. Why is there no Iraqi army that we can turn things over to in Iraq? And as I thought about these, it's, I, I've tried to put things together in a sort of timeline, in, in the, the following flowing, uh, flowing sense. There are some things now we know the answers to that we couldn't have known a couple of years ago. I'm going to talk about some of those. There's some we're in the middle of that we're doing our best to interpret and make sense of, and there's some we see coming down the road that we can, should do our best to try to size up. And with that sense of the ribbon of time and, and us making our way along it, I'm going to organize this talk by trying to answer four main questions. Uh, the first, and which I'll try to dispose of most briefly, is what we now can know about the origins of this war. Why exactly did it happen? I think things are clearer now than they might have been at the time, and so I'll, I'll say what my reporting has told me is the main thing we can know about its origin. Second, I'm going to ask, what do we know now about why things went so wrong during the occupation, especially during the first year, when suddenly nothing was the way it was supposed to turn out, and what, why, why did that happen? I think there's some things we can, can hazard. Third, I'm going to ask, what we know about the moment we are in, what trends we can see, where they seem to be leading. And fourth, I'm going to ask, finally, what we can assume, guess, or fear about the effects and the long-term implications of the moment uh, that we're in. So that's the plan. I'm going to end with one or two action points. Again, for those of you who are professional theorists or academics, if I fall short of the standard of theory, I'm just trying to pr uh, provide a DC-based pers repertorial perspective on what has gone on. I should say one other thing which might be surprising to you. Um, Iraq is, I've been in a lot of countries in my life, but I've never been in Iraq. And when the war was beginning, the Atlantic was doing a sort of triage deployment of its own troops. And there were there was one embedded slot, which uh, the magazine had with, uh, with the U.S. forces in Iraq, and that was something that I assumed I was going to do, but the um, editor of the magazine, Michael Kelly, did that, and as you probably know, he was the first journalist to die uh, in Iraq when his Humvee turned over in a canal and he was drowned there. And then William Langowish and Robert Kaplan have been on the scene in Iraq. My assignment has been to tell the story of how the war was planned and conceived and worked or didn't on the end in Washington, and I've talked a lot I talk almost every day to people in Baghdad by phone, but it's mainly been reporting, trying to see from the imperial capital, if you will, what plans, what expectations, what hopes, what mistakes, what successes went into the war. So that's the plan. Question number one, what do we know now, three years later, about how the war happened? I'm not going to go into the whole WMD controversy because I don't even think it was central to the planning of the war. 
nor to some of the personal dramas that you have essentially the same cast of characters in government who were there a dozen years earlier when the U.S. was fighting Saddam Hussein during Gulf War I, nor even the oil question, nor the, um, the Middle East-Palestinian-Israeli showdown, which uh, any of those I'll be happy to get to later on in questions if you like. I think I would suggest that with the benefit of three years' hindsight, the only explanation that really makes sense for why the nation went to war is that the leaders of the government truly believed in this cause. They truly believed uh, that this was both necessary, desirable, and proper, that it was the right sort of thing, that it was a path the United States had to take. I'll try to explain why that hypothesis of sincere belief, sincere idealistic belief, is the only one that really makes the facts, the facts fit better than they do with any other hypothesis. Now, one problem with trying to do this exercise of saying, what do we know about the origins of the war, is that this is one of the most over-determined events in, in recent history. You know, it is, I often think, in one of the Agatha Christie mysteries where the guilty party is everybody. You know, there are 10 suspects, and they all, in fact, killed the, the victim. And it sort of is this case here, because the path the United States has gone down since uh, in the last three or four years, I think, could not have happened except for the convergence of all of the following factors. The shock of the September 11th attacks in 2001, of course, which transformed the administration in American pol politics. Uh, the availability of a whole preceding line of thought, which I'll describe, about why Iraq was the important enemy for the U.S. to attack. The um, personal connections between uh, in the Bush administration to the first Bush administration and uh, the war against Saddam. I said, I said I wouldn't mention that, but I was cheating. You know, that did play a role. Uh, they, uh, the um, particular uh, intelligence failings that happened, which, which I think are not typical, but they came up in, in this, this case. Uh, the nature, the place where the attacks on September 11th happened also played a big role in our going to war with Iraq. Here's what I mean. In most war and peace deliberations in the last half century, the New York-based press has been basically anti-war. You know, basically the New York-based press is, is liberal, and with some, some a few exceptions. Because of the attacks in New York in 2001, a number of people in the press were radicalized in a certain way. A number of traditional liberals ended up thinking that they had to take a much harder line. And so you had the New York press, its center of gravity, much more pro-war than normally. And the Washington press behaved in a way that I had not really seen in my professional lifetime, which began essentially in the, the Watergate years, because its tone was essentially martial, William Randolph Hearst-type tone, that this was time for the U.S. to be on, on the march to war. I think this is how it must have been to, be in, to read the editorials in the Washington Post in 2001 and 2002, I think is the way it must have been to read them in 1964, early 1965, about the threat from Vietnam. This you know, also in the list of over-determining factors, the particular makeup of this president, his intellectual traits, where he tends to have one big idea and not look for any contrary data, his emotional traits, where he likes the idea of a strong leader, the kind of vice president he had with him who was reinforcing those traits, the kind of secretary of defense who also wanted just to get on with things, the kind of secretary of state with his own history, the kind of, of uh, national security advisor, and the kind of Democratic Party he had to deal with, where the opposition party, quote unquote, was so paralyzed by its own fear of being seen as weak on defense that it decided not really to oppose. So all those things, if any one of those things had not been there, or more, more than a couple of them, I think the results might have been different. 
So that's so I think all those things were necessary, but in looking at the guiding idea behind what was going on for this war, I think again the true sincere belief is the one that fits. At the president's level himself, it seems that he liked the idea of liberation. You heard his inaugural speech early this year, which was a almost shockingly idealistic speech about the United States is on the side of freedom, the side of liberty all around the world, and that's going to be the guiding principle for everything we do. And at all the rest of the administration, or many areas of the rest of the administration, there was a sincere belief. I think the president himself had not fully absorbed or fully paid attention to, but it made a huge difference in the rest of the administration. And that was the idea that in the long run, the United States would never be safe as long as Saddam Hussein, Hussein was in power. The argument here was not that he was involved in the 9-11 attacks. If he was, so much the better for making the case, but they realized that he probably was not. The idea instead was that when you suffer a small injury, if you have a small injury but you have a chance to go to the deeper problem, to go to the heart of the problem, that's what you do. Uh, one man I interviewed the day after the September 11th attacks, an Air Force colonel, said, let's think of World War II. We were attacked by Japan, but we first really concentrated on Germany because that was the real threat. And in this case, too, we've been attacked by God knows who, but Saddam Hussein is the real threat in the long run, and therefore uh, you know, we have to go, go after him. The, the preceding reason I won't give all the details for, but it boils down to the idea that the Arab Islamic world had been sort of the problem child of 21st century America and stood fair to be that for quite a long while. East Asia was developing. Um, Latin America had democracies. Africa had problems, but was not exporting those problems. But the Arab Islamic world was going to be the place where terrorism would flow and flow and flow unless something was done to upset the order there, and this was seen to be the way. Iraq was seen as the main test case for getting rid of this poison draining the wound, draining the swamp, draining, using any of those other analogies that you heard. And so I think that was, was the, the, the idea. What is the evidence for this mainly being an ideal and idea and ideology-driven war uh, rather than anything else? I think you can see it in much of the rhetoric that came out of the administration, and especially now after the WMD threat is not really so plausible anymore. You can also see it in the way things were carried out the consistent misjudging of how hard the operation would be, how much, um, whether the world would welcome this, how the Arab world would react. Almost everything that happened is consistent with the idea that this was seen as a purely noble, purely idealistic, purely helpful gesture for the world. Um, one need not agree with the argument, as I did not at the time, nor do now, but I think for historical clarity, or at least repertorial, repertorial accuracy, to put it in my own terms. It's worth saying, to my mind, the, the preponderance of the evidence is the administration took the United States to war sincerely. They believed this would work. They believed it was necessary. They believed it would be much different prospects from what it, what it has been. That's my, my first point. I think that's what the evidence shows about how this happened. Second, what, what does the evidence show us about why things went so wrong so fast in the few uh, months after the fall of, of Baghdad. About the raw facts here, there is sadly little dispute. 
I could run down the list of electricity supplies and attacks on civilians and all the rest, showing that, again, almost three, two and a half years after the occupation, uh, the difficulty of pacifying the country exceeds what almost anyone uh, predicted. Um, you will hear from many people in the administration that the trouble is confined to four of the 14 provinces of Iraq. Those four contain the nation's capital and more than half its people. It's sort of like saying, you know, only two of America's 5,000 cities were attacked in 2001. There can be attacks that can have, have spreading, sp spreading a, a effect. The, uh, it is, it's interesting if you have the time to go back to the official statements out of the administration in the six months before the war and what they were actually predicting. Paul Wolfowitz was not simply saying we needed a, a limited number of troops compared to what the, uh, the Army wanted, but also that the occupation would be self-funding in a relatively quick time because of uh, Iraq's oil, oil reserves. Um, Donald Rumsfeld was clearly expecting the war to be a brief bump in his main work in transformation of the country. Uh, we all remember Vice President Cheney's statement two days before the war began that the United States would be, um, would be greeted with flowers by, by the, the occupiers. Indeed, almost many things in the, in the operation of the war you can see as reflective of the idea from the planners that it was going to be a temporary thing. If you plan six months ahead, eight months ahead, that would be enough. And so we've had sort of rolling six months plans now almost three years in, in, into, the, into the, the occupation. What do we, how can we explain this? How can a set of leaders who had proven themselves so competent in Afghanistan and thinking about the way to respond and drawing up plans, how could they have seemed so incompetent in making decisions for the occupation of, of, of Iraq? If you ask people in the administration, as I have done, they will say there's really only one thing they have to apologize for. Uh, this might not be first on your mind, but, but they will say the one thing they have to apologize for is not realizing that Saddam Hussein all along was planning a long protracted guerrilla war, that he was planning all along to have the army evaporate, to sort of be captured and have his, his uh, people come up out of the cubby holes three months later, six months later. And so that, I think, is, is the view inside the administration of the main thing they, they missed. For the other things they missed, the fact of looting overtaking the country, the fact of, an, of insurgency beginning to arise, the fact of domestic life not returning to, not re returning to normal anytime quickly, the failure cannot have been a large-scale systemic failure, because one of the things which most surprised and impressed me when I was doing reporting for this article, Blind into Baghdad, is how thoroughly the American government actually had prepared. There were these vast spreadsheets put out by the Army War College on what you'd have to do a month after the occupation, a week after the occupation, how you deal with looting. So it wasn't that the United States government as a whole never imagined that anything could go wrong. There was something that meant that all this careful preparation didn't connect at the top end to the president, to the people around him, to the secretary of defense. As I look back on it, I think it's not a matter of the administration being spiteful and wanting Iraq to have a difficult, difficult time. It's not a matter of cronyism, as we might see in some of the recent hurricane events. Rather, I think the only explanation that makes sense to me might seem unsatisfactory to you, but it's the best I can do. To my mind, it was a simple failure of tragic imagination. Here is what I, I have in mind. If you wanted a comparison for the origins of this war, I think you'd have to look to the Vietnam War, because it's not often remembered now, but in the early 1960s, Vietnam was a very idealistic war. 
The United States was drawing the line against communist expansion. It was protecting the free and often uh, Christian people of, of South Vietnam from, uh, from attacks from the North. It was idealistic, much like this war. But if you wanted to find a comparison for some of the complications of this war, I think you would have to look at World War I. That is, if any of the participants to World War I had known how it was going to turn out, none of them would have agreed to fight. They would have all have said, this is what we're going to lose. The Iraq War will not have the same global implications as World War I, but I think it is similar in that people simply could not imagine how their well-intentioned ideas, their stable life, the era of American unquestioned supremacy in every possible field, that that could come undone. Again, this is impossible to prove but it's the only explanation that, to me, makes the best fit with the facts, that, that as the people in 1913 couldn't imagine what was ahead, so could the American leaders of the end of 2002. They didn't know what was uh, ahead of them. And you recall that in 2002, the United States government had not only a federal budget surplus, which meant the U.S. could afford almost anything for a long time, but it had an, a military that seemed unquestionably power, uh, powerful for anything it might want to do. It had shown that again in, in Afghanistan. So to, to bring this second question to a close, we have, I think, we have, uh, as I mentioned the first point, a war developed with the best of intentions and noble ideals. And we had a post-war problem and disaster, if you will, brought about by a, a related idealistic failure to be able to conceive of the unpredictability, the messiness, the dishonor, all the chaos that could uh, follow a well-intentioned event. That leads us to, to part three of what is going on now. This is, has been what I've been immersed in for the last four or five months. I'm trying to talk, as I say, almost every day with people in Baghdad and people in the United States, too. There are three parallel, or not three parallel, there are three forces swirling through Iraq now, and the combination of them will affect what happens to Iraq and what happens to the U.S. in Iraq. They are, of course, the political developments, whether or not the country can find some plausible way to hold itself together with its different regions and its different ethnic groups. The military developments, especially the insurgency, what kind of strength is either gaining or losing. And finally, the effort to create a new Iraqi military, which does is the beginning and the end of America's ability to pull out with some kind of honor from Iraq if there is a military to keep order in our, our stead. About the politics of Iraq, I will not pretend to come to you as, as any kind of big expert. And that was not my cue just to leave the stage. I was just pausing for water. There are, it is clearly a difficult situation they have to resolve. The resources are malapportioned among the different regions of the country. Uh, so obviously are the ethnic groups. There are regional implications of what would happen if the nation broke up. And it would be a constitutional challenge for almost any state to pull off a federal system that would allow these three uh, regions to live together. If they can do that, that will be a tremendous tribute to, to uh, Iraqi leadership and to whatever stewardship role the United States has played. I will say that at the moment, that does not seem at hand of having a stable political development. That obviously is what is required in the long run for anything to happen there. At the moment, the trends are difficult, but it is possible. It's possible we could be happily surprised there. About the insurgency and the military plans, I think the evidence is somewhat clearer there and is, is quite a bit more uh, depressing. 
you all saw the news in the last day or so that a number, uh, an another key Al Qaeda figure had been arrested. This makes, by my count, something like the ninth or tenth key Al Qaeda leaders been arrested over the last year and a half. In addition to the increasing numbers of insurgents, Al Qaeda members, whatever they're going to be called, who've been actually killed. And it's striking to see, and it's admitted by the U.S. military command, that the, the uh, trends go more or less in lockstep. The trends of number of insurgents who are killed goes up, and the count of remaining insurgents goes up at least as fast and sometimes faster. The point is obvious, and even Donald Rumsfeld said it before the war. The question is, are we killing them faster than we are creating them by our activities? But at the moment, it looks as if uh, they, the insurgents have the momentum on their side. It's possible that the evidence of this moment uh, you know, are, are overly discouraging. There are lines of argument more plausible than Secretary Cheney's claim that the insurgency in, is in its last throw, suggesting that supply lanes may be overstressed, et cetera. But I will tell you, from talking with people on the phone to Baghdad, emailing them back and forth, which they do with amazing ease and fluidity and, and openness, looking at some of the soldier blogs, very, very few of the American military in Iraq think they are on the winning side of this gyre at the moment. Uh, they're, you see this in official pronouncements where there's less and less talk about getting rid of the insurgency and pacifying the country and more about just managing it while the United States figures what, what to do. And from the people on the ground, I at least detect an increasing tone of just discouragement and bewilderment like what one remembers hearing about and reading about from Vietnam in the latter years, where you don't know who's on your side and against you. You know lots of people are friendly, but you don't know whether they're friendly enough to turn in turn in, in, in the, uh, the others. And so there has been an amazing uh, flowering within the military of counterinsurgency theorizing and thinking in the last two or three years. And you might think, well, it's about time. But it, it is impressive how many people are trying to, to look at the results of past counterinsurgency efforts. And most of the people who do that end up feeling somewhat uh, grim about the way the United States is now being able to carry out its job. A wonderful uh, book by a man named David Galula has recently been republished. Galula was a French soldier who had fought both in uh, French Indochina, that is Vietnam, and in Algeria. In the early 1960s, he wrote a book called On Insurgency, which is only about 100 pages long. But it's viewed as being the classic text of the advantages that insurgents have on their side and how counterinsurgents can, can deal against them. And he points out again and again that fundamentally the configuration of the battlefield favors the insurgents. If they blow up one restaurant, then you have to guard all restaurants. If they blow up one bus, you have to inspect passengers in all buses. And we've seen that leverage turned against us in the United States. But it is, it is so much easier for insurgents to create chaos than it is for counterinsurgents to control it that it requires a quite artful way of trying to, to deal with the issue. I will tell you that the U.S. military is learning fast in this environment. I'll tell you that many of their efforts to uh, deal with Iraqi politicians and Iraqi civilians are improving. And I'll tell you that especially the Marine Corps is attentive to how it can do things other than break down people's doors, how it can find ways not to make new enemies in each thing that, that, that it does. But I cannot tell you that many people at other than the command levels where their freedom to speak is somewhat uh, circumscribed think this actually is working thinking that it is getting ahead of the problem any faster than the problem is, is expanding itself. I spoke just two days ago with a Marine colonel just back from, uh, from service in Baghdad who said that on the current course, 
Now, he, he recommends changing course, so he's more optimistic than, than this may sound, but he told me that on the current course, we have two choices. One is losing in Iraq and destroying our own army because of you know, morale, too long, many tours, or he said simply losing in Iraq. You know, those were his choices. We, we lose and suffer or we just, just lose. You know, he thought there was another path, which I'll tell you about late, later on, but that is representative of uh, the, the tone I get from many people now, now serving. I mentioned there were these two elements of the Iraq we know now, the political effort, which is, which is, um, which is challenging, although conceivably could be successful in the long run, and the counterinsurgency, where the military trends of the moment are generally negative from the U.S. point of view, with a, with a few exceptions. What about the third element in this Iraq of the now a panorama, which is our effort to create an Iraqi military and an Iraqi police corps to do things that we feel we cannot do in, in the long run. It's worth recognizing how important this fact is, you know, tedious as it might sound, training the Iraqi force, because no matter what position you're in in the Iraq debate in the United States, this matters a lot for you. If you were an idealist who thinks that this can still be saved, that the effort can prevail, and Iraq can become a successful, stable democracy, then of course it matters tremendously that there be an Iraqi security uh, core of its own so that the U.S. doesn't have to be there with all the friction it causes in the U.S. If you mainly want the U.S. to get out as quickly as possible, of course you have the same desire to get the Iraqis in the position to do that as soon as they can. I can tell you here, too, that there are some things which look positive. For a lot of very detailed reasons, in the last six or seven months, this effort to create an Iraqi military has gone much, much better than it had been going before that. It's going better now partly because it was going so badly for so very long, and there had, you had about a year of essentially no progress a, at all. But partly because it's, it's under new leadership, there's an important cultural point about the U.S. military, which again will sound inside baseball, but is worth, constant, uh, worth noticing. Traditionally, as one uh, Marine Corps uh, major, uh, this was a one-star uh, general, so as one star Marine general told me, he said, traditionally training billets in the, in the services had been considered career killers. If as a lieutenant colonel or a colonel you were assigned to someone's training command, that meant you weren't going any, any faster any, or any higher. You wanted to be a combat commander to try to uh, rise high in the ranks. In the last six or seven months, one of the sort of highest rising and fastest flying generals within the Army, that is David Petraeus, now a three-star general, was put in charge of the training effort in Iraq. And his appointment by itself had tremendous leverage, just because this was a person everybody noticed as a guy who was, was on the move, a guy who was, was going to go places. And if he was taking this assignment, that meant there must be something to it. And there have been a lot of other doctrinal, uh, doctrinal improvements that seem to make it better. So the training has been getting better but at a time when it seems the need for these people to address has been getting worse faster. So in a relative way, the chance of having Iraqi troops able to defend their own country has been actually receding and losing ground over this last year. Let me give you the main illustration of this. In the first, few, uh, first year of the occupation of Iraq, the United States reported essentially how many Iraqi soldiers and policemen were, quote, on duty. That meant people who were getting or on some payroll someplace. And that number got quite large quite fast. It got to be maybe 200,000 people on duty. 
Then a military inspection team came out and said, wait, most of these people aren't ever showing up. They don't have weapons. You know, we don't even know who they are. So they had another standard, which was uh, soldiers who are trained and equipped. And that suddenly dropped down about two-thirds uh, to about one-third its previous level. It was gradually building itself back up. And then another inspection team went out and said, well, wait a minute. These people, they're not in units. They don't know what to do. They don't have any, uh, any discipline. They don't have any, uh, any mission. So a new measure was applied. This is the one that is now in place. In this way, we don't measure the Iraqi soldiers and police force by simple head count. We count the number of units who are ready to go into play. And there are four brackets in which these units are placed. Level one is the Iraqi uh, troops who could fight even if the U.S. left tomorrow. These are people who have their own supplies, their own training, their own commanders, their own logistics. Practically no units are in this group, as you might, might assume. The next is the groups that can fight. The next level two groups are those who can fight essentially with American guidance. If the U.S. will command them, if the U.S. will supply them, if the U.S. will do communications, if it will do satellite intelligence, then these units can, can, uh, are ready for action. There are 0% uh, of the Iraqi police are in this bracket, and about 30% of the Iraqi military is thought to be in this bracket that they could fight if led by the U.S. Level three are those who can fight alongside the U.S., essentially extra troops when you go on the mission, extra policemen there when you're arresting somebody, extra people with rifles when you're uh, going. The best 50% of the police units are in this bracket, and the bottom two-thirds of the army is in this bracket. And then there's level four, which is uh, defined as, quote, incapable. And this is, um, this is the remaining half of the Iraqi police force. So in short, we, what we have almost, you know, two and a half years of the occupation and effort to retrain, to retrain force is essentially no Iraqi military that could operate if the U.S. were not there uh, in very, very, very significant ways. You know, the best trained ones, the one-third of the Iraqi military, is capable of fighting if the U.S. is there in a very thorough way and the rest are, aren't there. In short, you know, to bring this sort of third part to a close, what we have here, we have the politics are questionable, the insurgency does not seem to be going away, and if anything, we are relatively losing ground in being able to have anybody except the United States do this job. And by this job, I mean policing to have the cities be uh, stable and a military to, uh, uh, to hold down the normal military threats. This brings me to my last question of where does this lead? What can we infer or guess or expect or dread from the trends we are underway now? I will say two words of personal preface to you in this. One is, I was against this war all the way along, not on reasons of humanitarian concerns, not on reasons of pacifist-type concerns, just because I didn't think it could work. I thought if there were a way to get rid of Saddam Hussein easily and to make Iraq into a democracy, that'd be fine. But based on what I knew, I didn't think it was possible. So this seemed to me like a crusade that was a crusade. It was something that was not a realistic military ambition. So you should bear that in mind in what I have to say ahead. Also, a word of personal disclosure. I'm somewhat reluctant to say what I had to say because by nature, although you might not have guessed it for these last uh, 40 minutes, I'm a fairly cheery and optimistic person. I like to have a can-do list of one, two, three, three things. You know, if we just do these things, we'll be straightened up. My kids can tell you how often they've heard that lecture. In most of what I have to describe, there is not an obvious solution or not an obvious way out. It's uh, when I asked one, uh, one British 
military official about what the U.S. You know, should do now to improve its prospects in Iraq. He sort of relied on the old chestnut about a person asking for directions and being told, well, I wouldn't start from here. You know, this is a situation we're in. You wouldn't start from here if you had uh, the situation. But, but we, we are in this situation, you know, for the war, against the war. We are in the war. The nation is committed. Hundreds of thousands of our troops have been there. 2,000 nearly people have been killed. 15,000 people have been seriously injured. Of those, probably more than half would have died if it had been Vietnam-era medical technology, and they are, they are seriously injured. So what can we do now? I'm going to consider these, again, in three sort of separate baskets of possibilities. Um, first, what's sensible to do in Iraq, or perhaps least non-sensible, least damaging? Uh, second, in foreign policy more generally, what this suggests to us or what the implications might be? And third, what it suggests about our nation as a whole and what we can learn and how try to uh, learn, improve ourselves from this experience. What to do in Iraq is, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting a phone call. I have to leave. No, this is, I say that because this is a really hard a problem that nobody has, has a, a good answer for. I will suggest, however, I, I do have, I, I will propose a policy to you. It seems to me that we have a threshold choice between leaving honorably, which I will define, and leaving on any other terms than honorably. And by, what I mean by honorably is in circumstances where we know that our departure will not immediately be followed by all-out civil war or by mass Balkan-style or Rwanda-style slaughter. I think that for the United States, which began the war against most of its allies' opinion and again, without immediate provocation, for the United States, to leave Iraq under any circumstances other than those would be seen by the world properly as dishonorable. And in this age of mass TV coverage, it'll be rubbed home to us in every other way. It will be different from any other episode in our history. In Vietnam, at least, the United States had been there for a dozen years, and that, that had its good and bad sides. And at least, the United States was able to, to help create a South Vietnamese army that lasted for two years. After, after the Americans left. I was in Nassau Hall earlier today with Professor Guerin looking at the list of people of Princetonians who had died in war, and they have, for the Southeast Asian campaign, as they, uh, as they noted, they had two dates. One was January 1st, 1961, which I guess they're just conveniently saying, you know, at, at some point in the uh, Kennedy, Eisenhower Kennedy years, we'll start marking it. The last day, I believe, was, I, I don't remember the exact day, I think it was August of 1973, but when the U.S. troops uh, withdrew. It was two years later in 1975 that the North Vietnamese main force finally beat the South Vietnamese. So at least in Vietnam, we were trying longer and with the loss of a very large number of people, and we had some so-called decent interval. If we leave Iraq without a decent interval, I think we will be shamed. We may have to do that. You know, we may be forced into the dishonorable course, but I think it's worth for clarity keeping this in mind. The, dis, the, the standard for honorable departure is we know there's not going to be all-out civil war, and we know there's not going to be mass slaughter, and we know that right now, even though the presence of our troops is certainly provoking lots of insurgent attacks, the presence of the U.S. also means there's not going to be outright civil war while we're there. There's a kind of buffer that we're providing, and there's a certain, although very tattered, level of security that the U.S. can help provide there. So what would it mean? to be able to have an honorable departure from Iraq. The paradox I have come to after thinking about what I have learned over these last three years 
is that we can prepare as quickly as possible for our own departure under honorable terms only by making certain very long-term commitments to Iraq. I mentioned in my original article that you heard quoted that it might be even decades that we had responsibility. I think it might be, because my view, based on talking to counterinsurgency experts and all the rest, is that the United States, if there is to be some lid held on Iraq for a while, the Iraqi army simply cannot do that any time foreseeably. It's going to need, for any kind of effectiveness, three different kinds of, of, of help from the United States for a long time, uh, or at least, at least two times. One is this sort of advising role. One of the great successes of the training effort in the last six months has been having more and more Iraqi units that have a team of Americans in them. You might have an American lieutenant in this team, an American communications specialist, an American logistics specialist. A few Americans with an Iraqi unit, it makes a huge difference. Almost everyone says that's going to be necessary four years if the United States is, is, uh, is going to think that the Iraqi forces can work. Also, it's the case that in building an Iraqi military, what the U.S. is doing now was described to me by one person as, we're making a spearhead. We're not making the whole spear. The idea was creating a force that could be out there on the delivery end where they'll be absorbing a lot of the casualties and dealing with their own countrymen where they at least speak the same language as the U.S. troops do not. But the rest of the spear behind this spearhead, in the view, would be Americans providing air support, which the Iraqis are not going to have, and intelligence services, and communications, and even hospitals, and logistics, and all the sorts of things the Iraqi force is not going to have. And if we expect the Iraqi units to be able to hold the lid on, I think we need to uh, just commit ourselves over the years to provide this kind of long-term commitment. I mentioned a third way in which the United States might have to make this, this commitment. This involves how long individual Americans are there. We all know about the wear and tear on the American military of a year in Iraq, then a couple months back home, and another year. This is tremendously uh, straining the military because you know, a lot of people decide, I can't, you know, this isn't what I signed up for. Ironically, or perhaps not ironically, but sadly, the problem for the military is our soldiers are there too long. The problem for being successful is they're there too briefly. They're there for too short a time. Now, all the counterinsurgency literature says you need to have years to develop relationships. I mentioned that General David Petraeus had been so successful with the Iraqi Training Command. He's not doing that anymore. He spent a year doing it. He's back now at Fort Leavenworth, not in the prison part, but commanding, uh, commanding there. And his, one of his friends and classmates, General Martin Dempsey, is there. And Martin Dempsey will be there for a year, and somebody else will go and somebody else will be there. You know, all the contacts, all the information, you, you have a series of people, a series of amateurs, because they're all rotating in and out. And so what I'm saying is, if we want to get out, we have to assume that American advisors will be in Iraq for a very long time, American air supplies, and American, uh, American logistics, American hospitals, and individual Americans will be there for two or three year rotations, not, 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 just, not just one. Now, question, can we sustain this? I, I don't know. I mentioned earlier that we might be forced into the dishonorable, the dishonorable path. It could be if the cost of actually making it doable seems too high, domestic pressure could mean that we just, just uh, can't, can't sustain it. But I tell you, as somebody who views this war as probably the greatest strategic miscalculation the United States has made in a century, I now don't think we have an alternative than to make certain long-term commitments. Otherwise, we are, we are, uh, we are pushed out and shamed. It may be, you know, there is a counterargument that can be made. The counterargument is that it will never get better 
we might as well face the worseness of it now because eventually we're going to be driven out. I don't know. I mean, that, that is the argument. My instinct is the reverse, but, but we will see. So on the – I said, you know, that's my promise what to do in Iraq part of the talk. Let me just uh, – on, on a few other issues. Again, to hammer this home, if we want to leave, I think we have to promise to stay. And that's hard to sell intellectually. It's, it's, it's hard to sell politically. But it may be – I think it is the reality of the situation as I best understand it. Two other brief things I want to talk about. I want to talk about foreign policy more generally and sort of the nature of American public life. And then I have a, a to-do suggestion for some of the students and, and other, others here. The, the foreign policy argument that should be occurring now is to say, you know, we, we have to start from here. We have to reconsider all the aspects of our foreign policy. It, we, if we look back on the circumstances the United States enjoyed at the beginning of 2002, we have to cry for the opportunities we have, have, have squandered. The beginning of 2002, before we went this way, the American Army you know, was strong. It was not overstressed. American foreign combat casualties were 12. The United States had a budget surplus. It could do almost anything it wanted. We've been distracted. We've lost time and money and all the rest. I think that we need to uh, – it is time for – both parties, but I expect it more from the, the Democrats, to be frank, to try to come up with a different reconception of what the right military policy is. L let me tell you what I, uh, what I mean here. Here's two different paths, and I think there's one of them which is more desirable. The way the military theoretically decides what the big issues are is through an instrument called the Quadrennial Defense Review. This is, there's one of these going on right now. Every four years, you're supposed to look from the bottom up and say, well, because we face this threat in Asia and this threat in Latin America, we need the following uh, number of fighter planes. In reality, the Quadrennial Defense Review is simply a budget-driven document. You know, you decide how many fighter planes you want to buy, and you come up with an excuse for them. And nobody who has seen it would disagree on that point. But that is the main way the United States now sets defense policy. The alternative to that is something I heard our former president, Bill Clinton, saying about a month ago when he said that, that what the Democrats need to do or what any responsible politician needs to do, if they criticize the war in Iraq, they need to have a theory of the case of a new defense strategy of where the threats really are, how the U.S. should address them, and what things we can't afford to, to defend. I tried to do something like that in one of the articles I mentioned to you, which was called Success Without Victory, trying to say, you know, what are the real terrorist threats we have to deal with? They're mainly loose nuclear weapons. What are things we can't really protect ourselves against, and what should we do about those? I won't go through all of that right now. I'll simply say that this is the main step that is incumbent, you know, on the political parties, incidentally, but for the nation collectively, is to do something we have avoided doing for quite a long time of saying, look, what is all this money for? We're spending more than the rest of the world combined and not getting what we want from defense. So can we not think more clearly uh, about this? There was a time after World War II when people, including Princeton's own George Kennan, were able to do this. And it sounds cliché to ask for the new George Cannon, but such a thing is in demand, and starting probably from this defense budget of saying we have enough money to do whatever we want, and all we're doing now is wasting it. How can we do it more, more in intelligently? I can tell you more about that in detail if, you, if you'd like, but I just will lay that, that on, on the table because I want to say something now about the fabric of public life that, that comes from this, this episode. I think the area which most demands reflection is the bond and the strain between the military and the rest of the country. 
having first the reason I began writing about the military in the middle 1970s was that I had not been in the military during the Vietnam War. I was against the Vietnam War. Like many other people, like most of the people from elite universities, I found convenient ways out. I wrote an article 31 years ago called What Did You Do in the Class War, Daddy? about the way all the people from college, including me, got out and the way that the uh, other people did not, not get out. So this had been of great interest to me in the time since to try to, to learn about it. One of the things that strikes me is I have never seen before such a distance and strain between military society and civilian society in almost every dimension. At the, at the political dimension, we know about red states and blue states. The military is the reddest of all red states. It is redder than Utah or Idaho. The military has, has the highest Republican configuration. This is neither good nor bad, but it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a kind of political estrangement. I'm talking about the officer corps here. Uh, at the uh, at the simple representation level, the uniform, the active duty military as a proportion of the population is smaller than it's been in more than a century. Now, there's fewer uh, building connections to the rest of life, uh, the rest of American life. At a sort of command and control level, I have never experienced, you know, since via, even including Vietnam, such open suspicion from the uniformed military for their political leaders, as in the last three or four years. The military is easy to talk to as a reporter now because they are so skeptical of the direction in which they're, they're, they're being used. When I call them as a reporter, you can tell them struggling with which they hate more, the liberal press or the conservative uh, administration. And they often are willing to talk with the press because they're concerned about what's happening to, to, to the military. And there are lots of other indications of this kind of strain on the military and the strain between the military and, and the rest of life, it seems to me that this is important for the United States to address. The military we have is not simply a tool of our national policy. In a democracy, it also has to be a part of the democratic system. Americans will end up dying and suffering for the decisions the political leadership makes. And if the class of people exposed to that is simply a professional class in the long run, I think that is difficult for democracy. Uh, as you know, you all know, if there had been a draft underway during this war, the war would never have happened, and I couldn't make my way onto this campus because the protests would be would be un underway. That, that's what happened in the Vietnam War, and not in this case. So, for the fabric of society in these ways and others, I think a reconstruction of the connection between the military and civilian life is essential not via the draft for countless reasons, that's not feasible anymore, but some way to recognize this as an issue, as it is in much of the military, I think is an important political, political goal. What am I telling you here? Let me sum up briefly because I'm going to leave it for, I, I have something I'd like you to do. To, to review what, sort of the, the, the train, train of logic, I was saying first that we got into an idealistic war for the highest of reasons, even though those reasons didn't match the reality on the, the ground. I said second, that things turned out to be difficult because there was a lack of tragic imagination and the consequences of that are gonna be with us for years and years to come. I suggested uh, third, that, that at the moment, the trends in Iraq were largely unfavorable to us and that we needed to uh, sort of see that we were on a boat going down the river that we didn't want to, to go and finally, that the way to deal with that was going to mean some very tough decisions about Iraq, that either, either we leave dishonorably and admit we are doing that, or we pay the price of leaving honorably, which is a long-term commitment from some Americans. I hate saying that choice because I, I didn't want us to be in this position, but I believe that that is, that is the choice. What this means and what I, I hope is that 
two different components of this audience might do two different kinds of things. Those of you who are in the in the uh, the professorial and similar class here, I hope we'll take seriously, as I'm sure you already do, this this task of finding a way to reconceive American military and foreign policy. I'm not really talking about foreign policy, about American military policy, which is so much of our impact on the world, so much of the treasure we spend. I'm trying to work on this in my own way with the next thing I plan to write for The Atlantic, but I think it is a challenge that needs the best efforts of everybody. This is the big uh, item on the national agenda to – the international agenda to correct of how we use the money, the manpower, the influence that we have in military means. For those of you who are students, what I hope is that you will – that this moment in national history will make some impression on you as something that needs to be dealt with with your talents and in, in, through your life. It will matter through your lives. I should ask, how many people in the room are um, – how many student generation people in the room are either in or planning to go into the military? Which, which is, 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 uh, is, um, is interesting. I would hope that that, that trend would change. I would hope that, that at least this question of the divide between civilian society in a rich country and the military that's being asked to do unusual things for the country would be addressed, that you would recognize this as something you are responsible for. The people in our military will be acting in your name with your money and any blood they either shed or inflict will be on your hands in various ways, and this is something to be taken seriously. So I hope that the theorists here will come up with theories, and the students here, among all the other wonderful things you will do for the country and the world and for yourselves, will recognize that a certain part of civil society has, has been frayed, that is, the civil military relationships, and that you will think about dealing with this, uh, not necessarily by enlisting, but at least by paying attention in, in the long run. Uh, and, and moreover, you know, you're being trained at Princeton so that you can do the theorizing job, too. Your professors might not want you to start right now, but I hope you'll start pretty soon and come up with those theories and be the next canons as well. With that, I've talked for a long time, and I've tried repertorially to tell you what I've seen and what I make of it. I'll be happy now to answer any questions you have about Iraq, about politics, about the media, about Washington, anything else uh, of the sort. But mainly, I thank you for the honor of this invitation and the very great honor of your staying and listening to hear me talk. Thank you very much. Okay. There's a microphone. There are microphones and the microphone over here. And while giving time for the microphone to move, I will especially invite a question. Let's see. There's a hand here, and if a microphone. Oh, so do you have the microphone for a question? So uh, I will especially invite questions, if you could send that over to, 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 to from people who, who would challenge my view that there is an honorable way to get out soon. But yes, that may or may not be what you wanted to ask. There are um, two solutions that have been suggested that you did not address. Um, one is that we have to look to the international community, be it the UN or some other international force, to replace us because our presence there is actually provoking uh, the reaction of the insurgents, and therefore, if we are replaced by another occupying force, be it the UN or whomever, that would be uh, better for everyone. The second 
uh, suggestion has been that there is no way to have a military solution, that we have to have a diplomatic solution. And I do not understand with whom one would be um, trying to make this diplomatic solution, uh, who would be at the table. Yes, the question is, why not have the international community do this job instead of just the U uh, U.S., and what about a diplomatic solution as opposed to a military solution? Having the international community do the policing would be great if they would do it, but I don't know what conceivable incentive there would be for you know, allied there, – there is – well, let me back up. There is a coalition in Iraq now. It's overwhelmingly U.S. The British are number two. I believe the Italians are number three. Then the Poles and the South Koreans. So there are some other units who are there, but it's 90-plus percent United States. Uh, I'm sure the, the – it's, it's conceivable that a subsequent U.S. administration could go to the international community and say, look, we started this war against, you know, U.N. will, et cetera, but now we'd like you to take over a situation we can't handle. Uh, but it seems to me like a real trick of diplomacy to, to get people to do that, especially as the situation appears to, to worsen. A detail of the worsening is essentially U.S. troops don't go out at night anymore. And the nights are when, you know, the new bombs are set for, for the next day. And Italians would be no more able to go out at night, nor would Greeks or, or anybody else. If you could have had from the beginning the, – the argument all along for waiting to do this, it was not simply that Saddam Hussein might get hit by a bus or something, but it was also that you could wait long enough to have at least a more varied and more Arabic-speaking and more Islamic force there. So international solution would be fine if they would do it, but I can't imagine that happening. The diplomatic solution, yes, it is true that there has to be a diplomatic solution to have a long-term military solution, and all the soldiers say that as well, that this is – up to the Iraqis in the long run. They will make a country or they will not. Uh, it will depend on the Iraqi military stepping up and, and whether the – it's not yet knowable whether any of the three components wants a unified Iraq more than they want what they want. Yeah. And so uh, that – yes, it's necessary in the long run. In the short run, however, disorder itself is both a political and a military problem. You know, the fact that people are – that cabinet ministers are getting killed and that police recruits are getting blown up and that the electric uh, supplies are getting destroyed, that is a um, – as the military calls it, that a, that's a kinetic phenomenon, but it has political, political impacts. Uh, do all of you know the term kinetic? Uh, I mean, in military term, this is what we used to call combat, is now kinetic activity. So uh, those are kinetic activities but they have political implications of just making it harder to have any sort of solution. So I think, yes, you need a political solution, but you need security first. You know, without uh, General Mattis of the Marine Corps was saying, you know, the main thing we have to do in the short term is make people safer. That's the, the curtain behind which everything else can, can take place. So I think that's the interaction between the two. Yes, there's someone in the far back. Yes. I think, uh, Jay, Mr. Files, you do a terrific job of, uh, of uh, surmising what's going on in Washington, what happened before the war on a very high level. But in challenging your um, assumptions for what should go forward, I think the biggest challenge one can pose to you is that you're talking to the wrong people in order to formulate your opinion. If you're going to formulate an opinion as to what to do in this war, you can't talk to colonels and generals and be on the phone to people in Baghdad, you really have to go out there or you have to talk to more junior people. And somebody with your prestige 
and your voice should do so because as a very intelligent observer of the process, you're doing your readers a, a disservice by not engaging with those sorts of people to come up with a, a uh, to, to form your opinion. And so to be, I didn't hear the crucial part when you said the people in Iraq or the people in America I should be talking to. You're talking to colonels and generals when you should be talking to lieutenants, captains, and sergeants. And you should try to get downrange in order to have a better firsthand appreciation for how those people feel because, you know, as an important voice formulating opinion in the United States, um, you're, you're, you're abrogating some of your responsibility as a prominent member of the media. No, I, I certainly take the point in general, and I have not been careful in, in pointing out just by the people I was referring to. I have the preponderance by by number of people I've been speaking with are, are enlisted personnel rather than officers. And it's – so there are not that many privates I've been able to make contact with. But I've, made, I've talked to a, a, lot of, a lot of sergeants. And so, uh, you know, it would be – my circumstances are such that I can't – that I have not been, you know, deployed in Iraq to interview people just on the ground, and I don't know how I could do that. I've made the best – and I'm not even – I am not sure that it, – it has been very, very interesting to hear from sergeants about equipment problems and about the M16 and, and its ammunition and about the, what the kind of armor they need and things like that. Um, I think it is crucial information to have. I don't know that they are any better informed than anybody else on sort of what to do in the long run. But, but I, I try to the best of my ability to have, you know, contacts up and down, down the range. One of the frustrations when you, you're required, you know, sort of honorably to go through the Pentagon, at least to make a pass in the Pentagon's press channel. What they said in this latest story I was doing is that they would arrange an interview with General Petraeus for me. I'd known General Mattis in the past, so I talked with them. I could not talk officially with um, anybody who had been working on the training missions before this instant because their information would be dated. And only the person who was the commander at this moment, he was the only authorized person. But I had a lot of mainly email exchanges with people way down in the ranks who i just known from trolling over the last three or four years. And they were very vivid in saying two things. One is, Here's what it's actually like to train some of these units. You know, these guys have no food. They are illiterate or w whatever they'd say. Some of they'd say, you know, I was very encouraged that some of the policemen heard a siren. They ran towards it rather than away from it. You know, so, so that kind of anecdotal thing. And also, they are the ones who talk about strain on the force, uh, things not going well. You know, that's where you hear that, that sort of thing more often in, in my, my view. But it would be better certainly if I were there. Uh, yes. Yeah. You and how about the suggestion? How about the microphone people? If you roam the room inside of people with their hands up, and I'll just I'll call on whoever you pick out. Um, you seem to reject the draft, and yet you uh, lament the fact that there is this disconnect between the, the the military class and the elite class in the United States. Um, what would you say about the idea of some kind of mandatory national service? which would include military service among other kinds of service that uh, other countries use to try to make more of a connect among people and, and the notion of, of, of nation building. And I say this as one who avoided going to Vietnam as well. Uh, the question is about some kind of mandatory national service. I think there are, there are two just about deal-breaking problems in my view in any kind of mandatory program. One is the simple force of numbers. 
Um, it's roughly true, something like between 2 and 3 million people turn 18 each year. Would it be that? It's probably more than that. It's, it's a couple of million people who turn 18 each year. That is a lot more than military needs by a huge factor. And it's more than you can easily find sensible things to do without having a real bureaucracy to get two or three million or four million people in the right places. So there is, if you're going to take in everybody, there's just questions of scale, of how, how you would find sensible and non-preposterous things for these people to do. The larger question, I think, is that a mandatory program means you're going to put people in jail finally. And, you know, even if it's only a tenth of one percent, that's, you know, tens of thousands of people you're going to be locking up. And uh, that hundreds of thousands. So it's it's. Uh, I think the. I think it's it's almost inconceivable in modern America that you could have a mandatory service problem, a service program. Because if it were truly mandatory, it'd have to be backed up by by uh, by sanctions. What I could imagine is a set of incentives so attractive, that that. It would be foolish not to take, adva take advantage of them, and people who didn't want to take advantage of them wouldn't have to. But if you had incentives of student loans or other kinds of things for a variety of national service, I think that would be good. But my, I think in modern America, you cannot have a mandatory service program, is my view. Do you agree or disagree? No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. yes. I uh, never read the 51st state, so what I'm going to say may be wrong. Um, from what you and Professor Garron's uh, description, in 51st state, you made a prediction. But that prediction is based on the country Iraq. And now, in your second of your four issues about tragic imagination, the failure is about a situation in this country. These two seem that entirely are different. They cannot both be true, or they cannot be. If the second is true, then your first may not happen. But the real issue is that in your second uh, issue, you really did not answer the question to your first question, namely, our, I, this idealistic belief. Was it a fatally flawed? Or was it, if we had better imagination, it would have succeeded? Uh, yes, that's, that's an interesting question about um, which I'll try to address this way. First, let me say a little bit more about what I was trying to do in this 51st State article. I said, which was my effort at tragic imagination. I said that, that if you asked people who had been through past occupations, in Germany, in Japan, in Kosovo, in Panama, in the Philippines, you know, you name it. What things could you say were common to all these phenomena and which things would be more likely in Iraq? And, and these people were pretty good in, in, in predicting how things were going to go. For example, there was tremendous stress on the point that liberators become occupiers almost like that. You know, that they have a very, very short shelf life and people very, very soon want to see their own people you know, doing the security duties and, and resenting the, the, the liberators. So that was a sort of, that was an, an informed guess slash imagination. And, and I ended the article by saying, and, and in the end, you know, what ends up mattering most is probably something we're not thinking about now, just because that's been the case with wars. They open up, you know, they go in directions that, that no one can predict. For the, let me see if I can address your question about idealism, and if not, feel free to, to come back at it. To me, idealism is, this may 
reveal me to be some kind of Philistine. But to me, idealism is always to some degree measured against the realities of the actual world. That unless you are decide to isolate yourself entirely from the sins of man and to live alone and to, to do everything you can to, to be a pure being, then always you're calculating the practicality of things. And there's all sorts of things I would like. I would like everybody in this room to subscribe to the Atlantic Monthly. That would be my ideal, but I can't make you do it. And, and so my, my view, I would, I would like North Korea to have a different government. And the United States is not attacking it because it can't, you know, because North Korea will blow up Seoul if we do that. My brother lives in Seoul, so that's, I'm against it on the, those grounds. And it's, so in my view, it was the idealistic goal that informed this enterprise as a goal I could not disagree with and very few people could disagree with. Saddam Hussein was a terrible tyrant. People were abused and oppressed and tortured, and he probably would have tried to get uh, dangerous weapons again. But I thought that this was not something we could actually do, and therefore, by idealistic grounds, it was likely to do as much harm as good. So does that answer the question or not? I mean, I thought it was admirable as idealism, but folly as planning because it didn't recognize the real world. That's, that's the best I can do, but uh, uh, yes. Uh, my question relates to, with people you talk to both in the government and the military, the insurgents win. What does that mean, and what is the worst-case scenario? Do we have <clears throat> the Shias and the Sunnis fighting it out for five, ten years, and then Saddam version two emerges? Do we have a puppet state of Iran, Syria? Do we have a state that in 10 years gets nuclear weapons to where 10 years from now the next president uh, is going to have to decide, do we go back in, do we go in with nuclear weapons? More likely, do the Israelis go in with nuclear weapons? I mean, what is the worst-case scenario? Thank, thank you for asking me that because I feel um, embarrassed now not to have, have made that point in the talk. So I give you a collective apology here. Uh, the, the specific worst-case scenario takes place in two phases and at sort of two levels. The first phase is just the kind of the fact that, that for some period of time, you know, probably just a couple of months, the U.S. would be blamed for disorder, bloodshed, rape, carnage, and, and all the rest. But the, the longer-term problem is the assumption that there would, of course, be essentially um, at the end of whatever civil war took place, you'd have three states. You know, you'd, you'd, have, you'd have Kurdistan, Shiistan, and it's called, and Sunnistan. And each of them would cause, would cause potential problems. The, probably the one that is sounds to me most like just a a sort of talking point as opposed to reality is Kurdistan provoking war with Turkey. You know that's what everybody always says. I don't know whether that's bluffed by the Turks, but certainly the Turks always say it. You know they say it every single time the prospect comes up. Kurdistan has been de facto independent for for ten years. In its situation may be somewhat like Taiwan's. You know, if they declare it more formally, it becomes more of an issue. But so that is one phenomenon which seems to me that could be a big regional problem. I don't know. The, the, the part of the nightmare scenario that actually is most convincing and disturbing involves Sunnistan, you know, the, the central part of, of the country, which would not have the oil and which would have an understandable big grudge against the U.S. because they're the ones who would essentially have won the war against the U.S. The fear about them is that, number one, they would be recreate what the Taliban had in Afghanistan, of a genuine terrorist haven, and this time there'd be no pussyfooting around about getting the U.S. because you know, it would be 
uh, the, the Taliban was not originally U.S. and its anti-U.S. and its motivation, although Al Qaeda certainly was was high on the U.S. list. But this would be anti-U.S. from the get-go, and so you'd have a sort of terrorist haven there. In addition to its being anti-U.S., it's clearly anti-House of Saud, and so overthrow of the House of Saud, which may be good or bad, but certainly would be destabilizing. You know, in, in Saudi Arabia, would certainly draw the U.S. in there. I mentioned earlier the officer who said, I see two choices, you know, losing in Iraq and destroying our army and just losing. He went on, the next thing he said after that is we have to save our army to defend Saudi Arabia against Sunnistan. That was his, you know, sort of a chain of, chain of logic. So I think the nightmare scenario is essentially an outlaw Sunni state in the center of the country, which would be less, which would be a more motivated enemy than Saddam Hussein was. And, and whatever flows from that. And will that happen? I don't know, but that's the main nightmare, nightmare scenario. And then uh, the, the Shia stand and the Iranians, you know, it depends on sort of the larger Iranian relationship the U.S. has. But I think the Sunni state is the one people really worry about. Somebody, where's, uh, where are our microphone bearers? Yeah. Uh, yes. So, so, so my hope is the microphone bearers will pick out people and I'll just call on you. Yes. I think I can make myself heard anyway, or understood. Um, in your analysis of the problems that we're facing in, in raising a, a, uh, an Iraqi force that can govern that with security and military, uh, you didn't talk about two points which I, I'm sure you feel very strongly. One is the, the, the difficulty of the absence of any loyalty, any point of loyalty presented by the present uh, central government. Uh, a conscript into the Iraqi army doesn't know who he's fighting for, what he's fighting for, why he's fighting or who his next boss is. And that gives rise to the, that increases the, the, uh, the disadvantages inherent in the existence of these semi-independent militias representing partisan, uh, uh, ethnic, and, uh, and religious sects, like the, like the Peshmerga in, the, in, in Kurdistan, or the Butter Brigade, or the, uh, so forth. So can, can you, can you uh, yes. talk a little bit about the, yes, the, the long-term Right. problem that that's going to pose for us. question about the lack of central loyalty from the Iraqi troops now being trained. And yes, this is a very important point. And the, the argument from many observers of the situation is that the most effective forces now in the Iraqi uh, units are the Kurdish Peshmerga, essentially. And, and that the reason that political and military developments are intertwined is until you have an actual government to which these groups might be loyal in some way, that then you do just have regional gangs and regional uh, militias. So there's a kind of uh, beat-the-clock uh, exercise, trying to get a central government established soon enough that you know, these, these uh, groups will have somebody to, to deal with. And that's why the civil war scenario seems so um, imminent, too, that if you do have a real collapse of the political efforts and a real withdrawal of the U.S. The result would likely be these armed groups. Essentially, the U.S. may be training groups to fight against each other, which is a fear that one often uh, hears expressed. So it's, that's, again, the connection of the political and military developments is, is essential. Yes, so, yes. I had a question uh, kind of related to uh, perhaps what we do next. Um, so you were mentioning earlier in, in, in your talk that you know, one of the really frustrating things uh, about witnessing how events have unfolded is uh, essentially exactly how much the government knew uh, about what it what it really should have done, uh, but but didn't act on. And related to that is the the idea that um, 
you know, sort of theories of, of counterinsurgency are, are really pretty well developed. You know, the U.S. was successful putting down the Philippine insurgency. Uh, we have so much experience with what went wrong in, in Vietnam. We have the, you know, Algerian example to, to, to draw on. So, uh, you know, and, and then in more recent times, we have experience with peacekeeping. So in some sense, the, the military uh, seems to have a pretty good idea of, of what to do. And in fact, you know, General Shinseki uh, was estimating, what is it, maybe 400,000 troops would have done the job properly uh, in, in, in Iraq. Um, so, so it seems to me perhaps we sort of know what to do, but uh, we don't have enough troops. So l l let me just follow the, the, the thought one, one step further, which is that um, if, if we're not able to get more troops, um, one other possibility, uh, which has sort of been discussed as, you know, perhaps uh, our, our most kind of effective action in Vietnam was to uh, sort of have islands of stability where you, you know, choose small regions, uh, concentrate your troops at the level where uh, they can actually do the job. Um, and then, you know, after they stay there a while, build up friendly forces, and then maybe they can begin to radiate outward. And, you know, that's perhaps what we're doing in Afghanistan, which is uh, disappointing in its own way, but much more successful than, than Iraq so far. So, so I just wondered if you could comment on that as a, as a best strategy given the constraints. And I think you all heard the question. And just to, to answer um, a couple of points quickly, I, I, I agree with you entirely. When we look back on this whole episode, the question of you know, theories of knowledge and what knowledge is usable and not or not will be very important because clearly in planning for the occupation, all these things were foreseen somehow that didn't uh, happen. And for the insurgency, yes, by the time the insurgency developed, there were a lot of, you know, very well-developed thoughts, as you said, about how to, how to deal with it. So I, I agree that's a, a fundamental issue. On the, the military knowing what to do now but not having enough troops, yes, I think they do have a much clearer sense. I think at this stage in history, starting from here, putting in more U.S. troops can almost by definition only make things worse. You know, there aren't that many more to get from the U.S., and just the, the sort of situation has reached the point where more U.S. troops, no matter what they do, create a problem. You know, that, they would have been better early on, but now is later. And, and I think so if there were some other force that could do it, great. That's what we're trying to train the Iraqis for. But uh, so, the, so then we have the islands of stability argument. And this has been well advanced by Krepinovich and, and others. And the, the main counter argument here, again, simply is that it's um, that there's not the manpower to do it. If you have just a couple of enclaves, then that doesn't really do you much good because as soon as you leave, they'll be taken over anyway. So I think this is viewed as being theoretically attractive but not practically feasible at the moment. And nobody has a more feasible alternative than just to try to get the Iraqis ramped up and have the U.S. alongside them for quite a while. So that's a frustrating answer, but it's the only one I've gotten from the people I've, I've spoken with. Okay, uh, this, is a, this is the last question. I'll be happy to talk to any of you afterwards, too. Okay, um, I have a question with regards to the military. You said on one hand that the Army or the military forces in general are the reddest of the red states, and yet you made a later point saying that they were conflicted between trusting the distrusting liberal press more or their political leadership. How would you account for this sort of dissonance between these two things, and do you think there will be any sort of political, political accounting with regards to sp specifically uh, military voters. 
Right. The question is a contradiction between the essentially very conservative military and their distrust of, of, of this particular set of political um, orders. I think there, uh, this is, is a conflict because by sympathy, you know, many, most, of the, most of the professional military is sympathetic with, with this administration, but they feel that sort of specific uh, orders and decisions for which, you know, the blame is often placed uh, at, at the Defense Department civilians. You know, that's a way to, to rationalize it. You have Defense Department civilians who largely are inexperienced in military affairs, with the exception of, of Rumsfeld with his, uh, his, his peacetime fighter pilot uh, training, but the rest of them are generally not experienced in civilian in military affairs, and that's how it could be rationalized. We have these theorists telling us what to do, and they've never actually been out in the unit, so I think that's, that's the main rationalization. As I say, I'll be happy to talk with any of the rest of you uh, informally. Thank you again for staying this late at night. I appreciate your having me here.